0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is uh, wonderful uh, to be here. I was uh, scheduled to preach on this passage about a month ago, and then I was sick, and then we had cancellations and, and things like that. So um, just, it's interesting, though, over, the, over that month when, when I was sick, and then I was away, and then I was, um, uh, and then we canceled uh, service the one week uh, because so many people were sick, um, being back last week and this week has just really reminded me of, of like you said, Max, the privilege uh, that we have uh, to be together and just so thankful that we can hear one another's voices. And I also know there's people, it's just been harder for them to be here during the season. We just want you to know that we miss you and uh, we love you and so uh, just thankful that we can, we can gather together in this way this morning. So uh, let me just pray, pray for this, uh, this time one more time and then we'll, we'll dive into this passage. Lord, thanks so much for the privilege Sunday morning, gathering together for worship, and uh, we are so grateful for your word, and so grateful uh, for all the things uh, that we've we've already sung and recited this morning, just the reminders uh, of who you are, and pray that during this time that your spirit will work uh, in my heart and among all of us, and that you would make us more and more, uh, conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know I'm not alone in this, but I am a sucker for a good uh, TV show or movie about World War II. I've always really been into them, even when I was little. I remember watching uh, Dirty Dozen and other movies like that with my dad. Um, and this week I was, I was thinking of two pieces in particular, one movie and one uh, TV show. The first one I have to admit I haven't seen, and I'm annoyed at myself from not having seen it, especially since I'm now trying to open a sermon with it. But it's a much acclaimed movie, some of you have probably seen, called Dunkirk. Did did people see this a couple years ago when it came out? Okay, I know I need to see it. And even though I haven't seen the movie, I'm very familiar with the story, and I'm sure that that many of you are too. It's the story of the British Navy's remarkable evacuation of 330,000 of their soldiers away from these encroaching Nazi troops. And and the soldiers, in really heroic fashion, were were taken away on on all kinds of, of boats under heavy fire. Back to England, where they would be able to fight another day, and many of them did. It's really an amazing historical story. The second uh, production that I, that I have seen is a TV series based on a book called *The Man in the High Castle*. Has anyone seen this one? Maybe not. Catherine, you've seen it. You're not raising your hand. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Unlike Dunkirk, this TV show is not a true story, but it's a, it's really interesting. It's a reimagining of what would have happened in America if the Second World War had been lost. And unlike in in Dunkirk, Dunkirk, in this story, the goal for the Americans in the story is not to leave the country, but but to stay, and and to resist, and and to work towards restoration. And in this show, there's a lot of things that you would expect uh, from a show about war, you know, bridges are being blown up, assassinations, things like that. But what always gripped me about this show was what motivated the people in the show to live in this way. And the reason they lived the way that they did, the reason they lived with hope instead of despair, despite all the circumstances around them, was because they had seen these secret films that not many people had seen. And what these films showed was was some sort of alternate universe where the war actually hadn't been lost and the Axis powers had actually been defeated. And the people who saw these films, they were just so, so real and so vivid and so beautiful in a sense that these films just kind of arrested them and caused them to look at the world that they were in and see it differently. Because of these films, they knew that the world that, that they were living in somehow was not all that there was and that there was indeed something else worth living for. And these things were on my mind this week as I considered this passage that we just heard read. In this passage, Jesus is praying for his disciples, those that have followed him over the past few years. We hear that Jesus doesn't ask his disciples to be taken out of the world, but he prays for them to be protected as he sends them into the world. Not taken out, but sent in. Sent into the world, having been known and loved by Jesus, and sent into the world with a message and a hope that is transformative. Of course, the question of how Christians relate to the world around them is is one that has taken up many sermons and many books and many arguments. (laughs) But I think this is one of the clearest and most fundamental passages that, that does begin to help us think through this complicated question. And today we're going to consider how this prayer of Jesus for his immediate disciples helps to shape and form us for our calling in the world today. We're picking back up today in our series in the Gospel of John, specifically in John 17, with what is known as the High Priestly Prayer of jesus and it's just so good for us as we as we come back into this prayer to just consider what a privilege it is that that we get to hear how jesus prays i know uh, a few sermons ago max i think you said you know john 17 that's really the lord's prayer right like this is how jesus prays and it's such a wonderful thing to hear how he prays for his disciples how he prays for us and so we hear another section of this prayer today, and we're going to consider it in two parts. First, we'll hear how Jesus prays about, about the situation of his disciples, and then we'll hear specifically how he prays for them to be protected in the midst of that situation. Now, in this section of the prayer, we should note Jesus is praying for his immediate disciples, right? Those that have followed him over the last few years, but we know from later in his prayer And he also cares for and prays for those who will come after his immediate disciples. So this prayer is specifically for his immediate disciples, but it's very appropriate for us to consider how these prayers relate to us as those who have followed as well. So with that in mind, let's start with verses 13 to 16, which I'll read again. It says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." So up until this point in the prayer, Jesus has primarily been praying for his disciples in terms of what had taken place during his life. He's described in the prayer uh, that these disciples had been drawn to him, that they believed in him, and and that Jesus had been faithful, that he hadn't lost any of them. He had been faithful to them in this time on earth. But now Jesus is transitioning into praying along the lines of his departure. He knows he's going to be leaving them very soon, and so he's talking to his father about it. And really, there's a lot of hard things going on in this passage. But verse 13, I think right off the bat, shows us two really beautiful things that help provide kind of a backdrop for everything else that's going to be said. First, we hear the truth that Jesus is coming to his Father. He is going to go home. Something we've sung about today in terms of our hope as well. It's going to be a really hard journey for Jesus, but he is going home. And most of us, I think, know the goodness of this statement, going home, right? Songs have been written, movies have been made, commercials have been shot, all about the goodness associated with that idea of going home. But really, no one knew the idea of going home like Jesus, because he was going to go and be back with his father, back in heaven, back where he belonged, having completed the unimaginable work that had been set before him. And so there's a joy for Jesus even in the midst of this hardship but look who else there is joy for Jesus says he is saying these things now so that the disciples may have the full measure of his joy in them his joy is not just for him but it's also for his disciples and he's praying these things uh, uh, out loud along with many other things that he has told, him over the last, told them over the last few chapters of John so that the disciples will hear him. The disciples will be joyful. Now, many of us know how powerful it is when someone that, that cares about you stops and prays for you out loud. It's a wonderful experience. And to not only have Jesus himself talking to the disciples but also praying for them and, and they're hearing it. Imagine the joy that it would have brought these disciples, to hear these words. And Jesus, because he loves them, he wants them to have this joy. But even as he prays for their joy, he knows there will be immense difficulty for his disciples. And it's along these lines that he begins to turn in his prayer. In verse 14, he says, he has given the disciples his word and will come back to that idea of his word. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world like Jesus is not of the world. So some of you know that that one thing I really love is, is basketball. I, I love to watch basketball. I love to coach basketball. I still love to play basketball at a much lower level as I get older. And those of you who have seen at least one basketball game, you know there, there are some things you can do on the court, and then there's some things that, that you can't do. So if I'm like trying to take a shot, and Max is guarding me, and he, you know, he's bigger than me, stronger than me, believe it or not, he comes in and he tackles me, he's not allowed to do that. But if Max tackles me when I'm taking a shot, then I get to do something called shooting free throws, right? Now, here's the interesting thing about free throws. When you're taught to shoot free throws, you're taught to do a couple things. You're taught to bend your knees, you're taught to bring your elbow in and get down and kind of go up like this. That's how we teach everyone to teach free throws. But do you know that that advice is actually a lie? Because it's been proven time and time again that the much better way to shoot free throws is to, yes, bend your knees, but to bring the ball down here and go like that and shoot. It's actually been scientifically proven. It's a lot better to shoot that way. But do good basketball players, some of the greatest athletes in the world who are desperate for any slight advantage in the games that they play, where one point can mean the difference between losing and a championship, do they ever do this? No, they do not. Why? Because they know they will be ridiculed. It just looks silly right? People don't like different. We're, we're naturally drawn away from different sometimes and, and towards people like us. And we can often be naturally suspicious of those that aren't like us. And this is, I think, part of what Jesus is saying in verse 14, that the world has hated the disciples because they are not of the world. The disciples are different. That's part of what Jesus is saying, but it's not all of what Jesus is saying. Because look, if someone shoots a free throw in a weird way, you know, that's one thing, I might make fun of it, but I'll just kind of roll my eyes, right? I'm not going to hate the person. We might not like different, but we don't necessarily hate it. We only hate different when different becomes a challenge and even a threat to our own culture and our own way of life. And that was the problem for Jesus and now his disciples. The things that they believed clashed big time with the world around them. Rome wasn't going to like them because the disciples didn't believe Caesar was the true king. The Jewish leaders wouldn't like them because if Jesus was who he said he was, that was big trouble for them. Their positions of power and authority kind of fell apart. Following Jesus just wasn't compatible with the way of the world around them, and it would bring, Jesus says, hatred. First of Jesus and then of the disciples. It was true then. It's continued to be true throughout history, even as Max prayed for people in certain areas of the world where that's even more true, where they really deal with this. Now, one solution for this would be that the disciples could simply leave the world right when Jesus does, but that's not going to be the plan. Jesus has something better in mind, not only for the disciples, but for the world. And he continues to pray, and he specifically prays in verse 15, not that the Father would would take them out of the world, but that he would protect them from the evil one. So the disciples are going to stay in the world, and we'll see why in our next section. There's a reason that they're staying, but Jesus recognizes that it's dangerous for them to be in the world where they have a very real enemy. Yes, an enemy, is Max Pray that we might want to scoff at, but a very real enemy, and that enemy ultimately is not Rome, it's not Caesar, it's not the Jewish leaders, not any other person. What Jesus is talking about here with the evil one, he's talking about Satan. Now, they're are long stretches of the Bible where where Satan is not an explicit character, and, and it can, not only in our lives, but even in our Bible reading at times, be easy to forget about him. But the beginning of the Bible makes very clear that he is the ultimate enemy of God's people. He hates God, and so he hates God's people. All the way back in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, he's the one who deceives Adam and Eve and turns them against God. And we hear later in the Old Testament how he explicitly opposes God's faithful servant, Job. And we even understand from later in in the New Testament that Satan is the one who blinds people from seeing the goodness and truth of God. And that Satan is the one who prowls around like a lion, wanting to attack and devour those who follow Jesus. So This is a very real threat that Jesus is praying about. But Jesus doesn't pray these things in a sort of aloof manner because He prays this as one who knows what it is to be attacked by Satan in a very real way. Some of you will remember that early, uh, right when Jesus was beginning his ministry, he was in the wilderness, he was fasting, and Satan tempted him in three very powerful and different ways, but Jesus remained faithful. And because Jesus remained faithful, he was suited to save and protect his people, And as he was faithful to his father in the wilderness when Satan tempted him, surely his father would be faithful to him in hearing this prayer. You may have heard that the book of James later in the Bible tells us that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. And look, that is never more true than what we see in John 17, the prayers of the righteous man, Jesus. And so the enemy is real, but the Savior is greater. And so we don't dismiss the threat that Satan is, but we don't walk around cowering in fear either. No, Jesus has won that battle for us, and you better believe the Father hears him as he prays for us, for our protection. And so having prayed this, Jesus states again that the disciples are not of the world, even as Jesus is not of the world. Jesus, it's interesting, repeats this truth, and it's an important one for us to think about because, as we alluded to earlier, there's a reason that Jesus is leaving his disciples in the world. And in the next few verses, we hear the why and how of what this looks like. In verses 17 to 19, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So there's really two key words in this section that we need to look at and kind of build around as we think about this. The first one comes right away, sanctify, or as it's translated later in the passage, in one instance, consecrate. Jesus prays to the Father that the disciples will be sanctified in the truth. And what does it mean, mean to sanctify something? Well, there's a lot of depth to this word, but one way to think about it is, is to be made holy, or even more simply, to be set apart, Jesus is asking that the disciples will be set apart in a certain way. Now, when I left college, I joined this really big accounting firm, and it was the kind of company that they would hire like a ton of college students every year. And before they sent us off to actually work, uh, they brought a bunch of us together for literally, I think it was about a month of training at, at an off-site location. We were at this nice country club in Florida. And there were some skills, you know, that they wanted us, that they wanted to teach us. But looking back, that that month really wasn't about accounting as much as it was for culture. It was a month of like, well, this is how we do things here. This is how we dress. This is how we work, right? This is how we treat our clients. This is how we interact when when we're off hours. This is how we're different from those other slacker accounting firms, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you're in this beautiful spot in Florida, right? And all of your food and drink is, is provided for. And by the end of it, you come away with two things. Number one, you come away with a mildly exaggerated sense of self-importance. And number two, you come away with a sense of the privilege it is that you get to work for this company. Now, I don't say this to make it sound sinister because I think company culture, those of you that are in the workforce, it, it, it can be very important. But what was really happening during that month was that we were being, in a way, sanctified, right? We were being set apart in order to work at and serve this company so that we could be appropriately sent off to our home offices and our clients. And I was thinking about that this week when it comes to sanctification as Christians You know, we immediately think of it as something that God does to set us apart to serve him, and that's true, and that's correct, but the reality is that all kinds of things, right, in our world want to set us apart for service, sometimes in good ways, and sometimes in not-so-good ways, and that's why I think the qualifier that Jesus prays with here is so important. Sanctify the disciples. Sanctify them in what? Sanctify them in the truth, and what is the truth? Jesus tells us God's word is truth. So there's a way that, that we're sanctified, right? But also, notice that Jesus doesn't pray that the disciples would, would sanctify themselves. He prays that the Father would sanctify them. And that's really important. You know, in our denomination, if you've been around our church or, or our denomination for a little while, we have what we call a catechism. Questions and answers that, that summarize what we believe the Bible teaches. And one of the questions in there is, what is sanctification? And I won't read the whole answer, but the answer starts like this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God, right? It's his work. He does it. But he doesn't just do it by magic. He uses what we call means. And one of the means that God uses when he sanctifies us is his word. Because by the word of God, we hear the good news of a God who creates, a God who restores, a God who forgives, a God who saves. By the word of God, we begin to see what is really true and really good and really beautiful. And because of God's work in us by the Holy Spirit, we begin to get new desires. And we begin to desire what what is true and good and beautiful in God's eyes. And we begin to want to be like Jesus. It's amazing what he does. We begin to want to be like Jesus, the one who loves us and has given himself for us. And so God shapes us, sanctifies us by his word. And as God shapes us in this way, he's also protecting us and he's counterforming us against some other ways that, that the world around us wants to form us. Because remember, our calling is still to be in this world. But God sanctifying and shaping us in this way is not just so that we can right, hold down the fort and preserve ourselves. We noticed earlier that there are two key words in this section, both of which are repeated. First one, I said sanctified. Second one is sent. And they're both really important. In both of these words, we follow Jesus. Jesus sanctified or consecrated himself, and so his disciples are sanctified. Jesus was sent into the world, and so his disciples are sent into the world, sanctified in order to be sent. We are set apart, and we are set apart Permission. And really, in these few verses, we have kind of the, the conundrum, not just for Jesus' immediate disciples, but for all those who have followed Jesus in the 2,000 years since. What does it mean to, to still be in this world, but, but not belonging to this world? What does it mean to still live in this world, and even to be sent into the world, but, but not defined by this world? It's a really hard question to wrestle with. And so before I think we say anything, we have to say it's really difficult (laughs) to understand what it means to live in this way, and it's going to look different across time and space and in different people and different cultures. The first response to what Jesus prays here, I think, is just humility, because Christians have been trying to understand what this looks like for a long time. And one of the reasons I think it's hard is because living intention is always hard. We don't always like living in tension because we like things, usually, to be clear and black and white. And so I think there's a big part of us that when it comes to, to living in this world as Christians, what we would really like is just, just give us a long list of specific rules, right? Here are the movies you can watch. Here are the TV shows you can watch. Here's the music you can listen to. Here's who you should vote for. Here are the clothes you're allowed to wear. I, I think there's a part of us that would really like that because it, it feels a little more clear and gives us a little more sense of control and the struggle to live in tension I think can lead to two temptations that Christians fall into all the time and both of which can trip us up and both of which Satan as we talked about would love to exploit in our lives. Two temptations. First one is just to assimilate and go along with the world and forget about that sanctification part and the second temptation is just to remove ourselves from the world and forget about the scent part. So the first temptation going along with the world. In the church, we often call this worldliness, right? And the reality is that, yes, the world is going to want to draw us in and want us to just go along with its values even when they go against the God who made us and loves us. Many examples of this. But one example that, that is huge right now, in particular, we see a lot of Christians, we see a lot of churches being drawn to worldliness in the area of sexuality. And we talk about that a lot. It's, it's concerning and it's tragic and we should lament it. We should pray against it. We should push against it, even if the world hates us for it. We just have to count the cost and follow God's word and obey him. It's the way of life. And when we have eyes to see a particular temptation like this, maybe like the area of sexuality, and be aware of it, as people, as a church, by God's grace, that's a really good thing. But of course, we also need to be aware that there are a lot of ways to be worldly. (laughs) And worldliness comes from all kinds of different directions. To use today's parlance, right, both the left and the right, both liberals and conservatives, they offer their own versions to us of worldliness. And they're both really dangerous. And they can both really hurt churches and take Christians captive. And because we're not all-knowing, we are often on our own, we're going to have a hard time seeing the particular ways that Satan is going to go after us to, as we, to go along with, this, with the world. The world offers plenty of lies, and sometimes the most dangerous ones aren't the ones that make us the most upset, but they're the ones that we don't like to think are lies, the ones that we're kind of drawn to. And that's one reason we need each other. We need people around us whose blind spots are different than ours. We need people who notice different things when they read their Bible. And that's why we're so glad for the church, right? Men and women need each other because sometimes we're going to see and notice Different things. People of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds need each other because sometimes we're gonna see and notice different things. Young and old people, we need each other because sometimes we're going to see and notice different things. And that's one reason that that God's church, both in its local form and also in its global form, is so beautiful. We need each other, and he gives us the gift of one another. We see this often in the New Testament. Some of Jesus' disciples came from really different political backgrounds. Jews and Gentiles, with so many deep cultural differences, centuries of mutual loathing and distrust, were called together into churches. The gospel brings people together, and our wisdom deepens when God brings us together to read and apply scripture in this way. We'll understand the world around us more clearly, but even more importantly, we'll understand the Bible more clearly. And we need to understand and apply the Bible well to live wisely in this world. And that's important because, yes, the first temptation is going along with the world, but the second temptation is just withdrawing from the world. Forgetting that, that this is the world that, that God loves. Forgetting that, that this world, even in its sadness, even in its rebellion, is still full of great beauty and many reflections of God's goodness. Forgetting that this world is full of people bearing God's image. Sinful people, yes, but people fearfully and wonderfully made. People who need the Lord. Forgetting that we're set apart not for seclusion, but for mission. That's the second temptation. There's an author uh, who, and he was a pastor too, who died about 10 years ago, one of my heroes, John Stott, and he framed this idea really well, and I think there's a quote for the screen if if we have it back there. There it is. This is what John Stott said about this uh, passage. He said, The fact that we are sent into the world like Jesus will shape our understanding of mission. It tells us that mission involves being under the authority of Christ, we are sent, we did not volunteer, renouncing privilege, safety, comfort, and aloofness as we actually enter other people's worlds as he entered ours, humbling ourselves to become servants as he did, bearing the pain of being hated by the hostile world into which we are sent, and sharing the good news with people where they are. And you can really see, I think, how all of this goes together because Jesus has has prayed and is praying for us because he has promised to protect us because he's given us his word to guide us because he's given the privilege of the church because he's given us great joy because of all of these things we can now joyfully go about the outward facing mission of love that he's given us. You know, the most famous verse in the Gospel of John, maybe in the Bible is undoubtedly John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave that he sent his son into the world, Right? It's not inappropriate, I think, to say, as scholars have noted, that God still loves the world. And as a result, he continues to send his church into it. And that is such a privilege for us. Even if it is a privilege to be God's people in this world, I know it's still hard (laughs) and it's still complicated. And as we've said, this is an area where Christians have struggled for a long time. And so we approach the subject with humility, but here are just a couple things to remember. Number one thing to remember. One reason this is so hard is because it really is true. We can't forget this, that there is a sense that as Christians, we just don't belong here. Jesus says, really does say that we're not of this world, just as he was not of this world. It's hard to be somewhere. We don't really belong. And you know, even if we were to figure out the exact quote-unquote right Christian way to live in the world, it would still be hard, and the world would still oppose us and that that's hard. But because we don't belong here, we have the privilege of pointing to something better, something good, something beautiful and true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that someday He will return and He will make all things new, and the homesickness that we feel now will be gone forever. And knowing that as we pointed out, that some people will be drawn to His beauty and join us. That's one thing to remember. Number two thing to remember as we navigate all this is to remember that while this prayer, I think, gives us a lot of wisdom for walking through life in this world, there's not a single command in this prayer. This prayer does inform us, but much more than that, this prayer promises us. This prayer promises us that he will be faithful to us no matter the opposition. Jesus is praying that we will be protected from the evil one and the Father, I'm telling you, he hears this prayer. Jesus is praying that we will be sanctified, and the Father hears this prayer. And in the church, again, we have the privilege of seeing just how God is doing this great work among us. I mentioned earlier that it's interesting that God sanctifies us, but in this section of John, Jesus sanctifies himself. And we also said that there are many types of sanctification, and that is really on full display in this passage. Remember that this prayer of Jesus doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are things going on outside the room. He's in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is abuzz with activity. Why? Because it's the Passover. And what was the Passover? It was the time when God's people would remember how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And what were the people supposed to do in order to celebrate the Passover? Well, for starters, they were supposed to consecrate themselves. And as one commentator noted, the people were supposed to be consecrating or sanctifying themselves to prepare for this very holy and important time, the Passover. But instead of sanctifying themselves, they become fixated on killing Jesus, the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And the one who, if they would only listen to him now, was ready to deliver them again from all their sin and all their sorrow. But while the people failed to sanctify themselves, Jesus says right here, he did sanctify himself. He was setting himself apart for what his whole life had been leading to. His death on a Roman cross, that he died in our place, dying for our sin. And because Jesus set himself apart, now we too are set apart by God. Set apart to receive his love, set apart to be made more like him, and set apart to follow him in his mission. Being sent into the world with his truth with his humility, and with his love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of listening in to how Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the one who came for us, came to this earth for us to hear how he prayed for his disciples and how he loved them and how he loves us. And Lord, we know that it is hard to be somewhere where we feel like we don't belong. And we know that there will be times when we feel that uh, even more than perhaps we do now. But Lord, we know that you are faithful, and we thank you for the wisdom that you give us as we listen in to this prayer, but also we thank you especially for the promise that Jesus made, that we would be protected and that we would be sanctified. We thank you that Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us, and we thank you that Nothing can separate us from his love. And Lord, as we go into this world, a world that will oppose us, Lord, help us to go with joy, help us to go with humility, and help us to go knowing that you do love, care for, and protect us. We Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.